Thanks, Peter, for that Bible reading. Hello, I'm Nathan, if you haven't met me, and I have the privilege to... Whoa, hello. ...to preach from God's Word this morning. Hello, hello. It's a sound coming through. Sweet. We're all set. Thanks, guys. How about I pray for us, and then we'll dig into God's Word. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, you are good. Thank you for your word. We pray that you'll soften our hearts as we come to your word. In your son's name, amen. We all love weddings, don't we? Some of us were at Daniel and Vanessa's wedding yesterday, and it sort of reminded me of my own wedding with Josephine late last year. The most memorable part for me was saying the vows. It went like this. I, Nathan Chang, take you, Josephine Rolando, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. In the presence of God and before these witnesses, I make you this vow. With this ring, I wed you. With my body, I cherish you. And with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pledge you my unending faithfulness. These are promises that I made to Joe. Uh, last year to my wife, and she also made these vows to me as well, and it was a beautiful moment. I remember it vividly because I knew just how important these promises we made to each other were for our marriage. Now, another word to describe these promises made by two parties is the word covenant. A covenant is a binding agreement that establishes the basis and commitment of a relationship. Now, this covenant is made in every wedding, but unfortunately, we know that not everyone who gets married actually keeps this covenant. What happens if one of the parties breaks the covenant? What if one of them isn't unendingly faithful? What if one of them doesn't cherish the other and instead gives themselves over to another person? Well, we see this covenant making and breaking in our passage today between God and his people, the Israelites. This passage that we just heard, it's in a story form, and it uses this language of covenant, marriage, and adultery, and it's a beautifully crafted metaphor and picture. I remember the first time I read this a couple years ago that I got teary at the end, Um, so perhaps we'll feel that today as well. Um, It will be great to have your Bibles out because I'll reference it throughout this sermon. It's page 583 in your pew Bibles. There's going to be four points that we'll cover today. Covenant making, covenant breaking, covenant consequences, and covenant establishing. Firstly, covenant making. We see that the Lord cares and makes a covenant. I'll read from verse 3 to 6. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field For on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, 
live. The story begins by describing the pitiful state Israel was in and just how God had uh, compassion on them and made them his people. Jerusalem here represents the Israelites, and we know in the timeline of the Bible that God chooses Abraham in Genesis 12 for seemingly no particular reason. Abraham was a nobody. He wasn't a king. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't anything, yet God chose him. Israel started as a nation of one person who had nothing going for him. Yet, as verse 6 says, God sees him and says to him, uh, live. And he promises that out of Abraham, a nation will be created, that they will have their own land and that God will bless them. They used to be nothing, helpless without a protector, but now they are God's chosen and loved people. And God promises begin to come true. We see this progression in verse 7. I'll read verse 7 for us. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had form and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. We see a progression of growth here. Israel all started with a single man, Abraham, and then it grew to a family of 12 children and wives and servants, and then it grew to a massive nation. So large that even the Egyptians were scared of them and enslaved them. They have grown in number, but they were in slavery and not in the promised land. So they were still stark naked. But then God comes along to change all of that. So let's read what happens in verse 8. Verse 8 says, Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. In Egypt, the Israelites were enslaved, weak, without protection, and helpless. But then God comes along and spreads his wings and covers her nakedness. This expresses God's protection and provision over them as he defeats the Egyptians and saves them out of Egypt. Then, just like how Joe and I made vows and, and made this covenant with each other, God makes a covenant with the Israelites. God being the groom and his people being the bride, he gives an oath and he enters into a covenant with her and calls her his. Uh, this is a beautiful thing, isn't it? God promises and expresses his great love towards her um, and this expression of love just keeps giving. It keeps going in verse 9 to 14. In those verses, we see how God cares and provides for her above and beyond. He gives her an embroidered Cinderella-like dress uh, and really nice sandals. He gives her expensive jewelry, the most delicious food, and makes her beautiful and royalty. A queen married to the king. This symbolism represents how God uh, provided victory over their enemies and a land flowing with milk and honey. He's given them so much. Wow, what a story so far. It sounds like the start of a K-drama or a rom-com um, when the rich CEO reaches down to the poor girl and loves her and provides the best for her. 
However, as in most of these types of shows, there's the infamous car crash scene or a massive complication that messes everything up, and that's what we see next in our passage. We're up to our second point, covenant breaking. I read verse 15 to 21. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places, where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of gold, of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them, and you took my oil and incense before them. Also, also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. Wow, what just happened? Israel, as God's beautiful wife, has committed adultery by exposing herself to the other nations and worshipping their gods and idols. She becomes a prostitute who takes what her husband, the Lord, has graciously gifted her with and gives it away shamelessly to others. They have made alliances with other nations, given themselves up to worship their gods instead of their true and living God. And verse 32 to 34 sums this up by exclaiming this. You adulterous wife, you, you prefer strangers to your own husband? All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you are the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You are the very opposite, for you give payment and none is given to you. This adulterous Im imagery just keeps stacking up. The Israelites are whores, and they're not even like normal whores who would receive payment for their illicit favors, but they're rather giving payment to others. Oh, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. This story is crashing and burning, and it's taken a turn for the worse. In other parts of Ezekiel, we see just how stubborn, promiscuous, and evil the Israelites have become. It describes them as a rebellious nation, as obstinate and stubborn, as unfaithful, as evil people who shed their own children's blood and sacrificed them to idols. God even says that they have become worse than the other nations around them. And that's why God sends Ezekiel as a prophet to expose Israel's great sin and rebellion. Wow, what a low point in Israel's history. They were meant to be God's holy people, but they have become disgusting and defiled. They have made themselves dirty and sinful, like an adulterous wife. It can be easy for us to point the finger at the Israelites and be disgusted at their sin. But I wonder if instead we need to point the finger at our own hearts and examine us in here. I've got a couple of questions to help with our examination. Firstly, 
how quickly are we to make idols of other things around us? We can be so easily influenced by influences on social media or become obsessed with celebrities or K-pop idols and idolize our intellect and our economic status. And this is just to name a few things. We can be tempted to be just like the world around us in their idolatry, just like the Israelites did with the nations around them. How true is the quote from John Calvin, where he says in his institutes that the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts just keep making, just keep producing and worshipping idols. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we can't enjoy God's creation and providence and that we should to- to totally neglect them, but we need to place them under God in our hearts, knowing that he's the one who provides it for us and that we ultimately worship the creator and not his creation as God's holy and chosen people. Our second question to consider is, how has God blessed you? God has shown care and compassion on us, even more so as Christians, but we take it for granted. It's easy for us to, take, to say a quick prayer before a meal, but are you truly thankful for God's providence? Not just for your meals, but for the job that he's provided for you, the roof over your head, the salvation that he provides through Jesus. Perhaps instead of only thanking God for the food and that it will be a blessing to our bodies, we should take a minute to reflect on the many, many other things that God has provided for us and thank him for that. A way you could do this is that you can ask the people around the table for what they're thankful for, and then when the food comes out, you can pray to God and thank him for the many things that you mentioned. Uh, And finally, to hit a little closer to home, how easy is it for us to attribute God's gifts as things that we have gained for ourselves? For example, isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to become prideful in areas like work and study? People praise us for good marks and a job well done, and we bring glory to ourselves and praise ourselves for the hard work that we have achieved but we forget, just like the Israelites, that God has given us this ability, this ability to think, to study, to focus, to work, to even take our next breath. We need to be aware of how we, in our selfish sin, worship ourselves and make ourselves an idol. We need to remember God's grace towards us and bring him the glory. Okay, so we've talked about humanity's great idolatry and sin and how we are like Israel in this passage, that we have been unfaithful to the God who has showered us with love, with his love and grace, that we have distanced ourselves from God in our sin and have caused this relational breakdown. So what's God going to do about it? We see in our next passage, uh, so we're up to our third point, covenant consequences. I read verse 35 to 38, and then I'll skip down to verse 59. From verse 35. Therefore, you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body in your promiscuity with your lovers, 
and because of all your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I am going to gather all your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around and strip you in front of them, and they will see you stark naked. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance on my wrath and jealous anger. And then verse 59 says, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. We see that there are harsh consequences because the Israelites have broken the covenant. God is angry at their betrayal, and because he is just, he will punish his people. The Israelites have abused God's generosity and cheated on her husband by giving themselves over to other nations, so God hands them over to them. The other nations tear them down, strip them of all of what God originally provided for them, and leaves them stark naked. The nations will hack them to, swords, uh, to pieces with swords, burn their houses, and inflict great pain on them. This is what has happened to the Israelites in the time of Ezekiel, in around 600 BC. Ezekiel is among the exiles of Israel in Babylon. They have been taken, overtaken by the Babylonians. They have been dragged from their promised land to the land of the enemy under a foreign king. Israel is going through their punishment now in exile. They've lost everything. They've lost family, the temple, their land. This is what it means when um, it says that there's shame and nakedness. They have lost it all, and they're left with this shame and naked in exile. The exile is a real low point in Israel's history. The consequences for breaking the covenant are serious and great, and we are in the same boat as the Israelites. We have sinned greatly against God, and we are found guilty and condemned to God's wrath, anger, and punishment. There was not one found among the Israelites that was righteous. And as Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one, amongst anyone ever. We are all sinners and deserving of God's wrath. Sin is a serious matter with great consequences. What would it take to recognize the severity of your sin? Would it be something drastic like the exile? The Israelites were warned for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it wasn't until the exile that they realized that they messed up. God gave them lots of warnings, and he gives us lots of warnings as well. When will you wake up and realize? We may experience the natural consequences for our sin in our lives. For example, when we face a breakdown of relationship because of our anger and pride. Uh, what would cause you to turn from your ways? When we're aware of the sin in our lives, we tend to not act on it, to minimize it, and pretend that it's not serious or detrimental. But we can't do this. We need to take immediate and serious intentional action. John Owen's quote rings true. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
God gives us plenty of warnings in our lives and in his word. So let's have ears that hear and let's heed these warnings. So we've seen so far that we've been unfaithful to God and that we're sinners deserving of God's wrath and that sin is a serious matter with great consequences. So how will this story end? Is it the end of the marriage between God and his people? Well, let's continue the story to see what happens. We're up to our fourth point, covenant establishing. I read from verse 59 to 60. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Wow, surprisingly, this is not the end of the marriage. The Israelites, they deserve exile and shame, just like how we deserve it. But despite Israel breaking the covenant, and even though they are being punished, God says he still remembers the covenant. God hasn't given up on them. He's still at work, and this is what he's going to do. Uh, We see what he's going to do in verse 62 to 63. He says, So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then when I make atonement for you for all you have done. After the Israelites are dealt their punishment, there will be a remembrance and establishing. And this is seen 600 years after the time of Ezekiel, when we meet Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and sinless Israelite who keeps the covenant on our behalf. Jesus is the faithful Israelite who does what Israel was meant to do. You see, Jesus doesn't cheat on God. Jesus loves and obeys God perfectly. It's through Jesus that God establishes his eternal covenant with us. This comes to be by God making atonement for us through his Son, Atonement, it's an action of amends that leads to a reconciliation of relationship. And this action here is Jesus dying on the cross. He takes the punishment and wrath that we deserve, and he does this so that we can be restored with God, at one with him again, and on good terms. Romans 3, verse 23 to 25, explains this glorious truth. I'll read it for us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Despite our sin and adultery, God still loves us, and he does this by establishing an everlasting covenant that will never fade, by holding up our side of the covenant through Jesus. Atonement is made. The marriage is restored. Our sin and adultery is done away with. It's forgiven and forgotten by God. We are cleansed and pure because of Jesus. At the end of the vows that I mentioned at the start, it says, I pledge you my unending faithfulness. And this is what God does. He pledges it, And he follows through with it perfectly by sending his son, Jesus, for us. This is a God-initiated, God-carrying, God-sustaining covenant 
that secures salvation and relationship with God so that we may live and enjoy all of God's gifts. God promises us in his word that this will continue and come into fruition in the new creation where there will be a beautiful and majestic marriage between Christ and the church. And this is secured for us in Jesus. This is the assurance of the certainty that we have for those of us who have already put our faith in him. Wow, what an end to the story. We've seen in our passage that God had made a covenant with the Israelites, how they and how, and how we have broken the covenant, and how God has established his everlasting covenant through Jesus. And you can be a part of this beautiful story. Friends, there'll be a day coming where it matters most if you have put your faith in Jesus. We have been warned of a judgment day to come. And without Jesus, you'll face the consequences of God's anger and wrath. He will be rightly angry at his unfaithful bride and will confront his bride who betrayed him. It will be too late to turn to God then. So remember what Romans 3.25 says. It says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So therefore, before that day, we must repent of our sin, ask for forgiveness from God, and receive Jesus by putting our faith in him. And when you do, you can join us as God's people, as God's beautiful bride, as God's beautiful wife, with him forevermore. How about I pray for us to close? Lord, we are like the Israelites. We were destined for death and judgment because of our sin. Lord, we ask you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you are faithful despite our unfaithfulness. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to make atonement for us and to hold up our side of the covenant. Thank you that he is faithful on our, on our behalf for those who have put our trust in him. Lord, for those of us who haven't yet put our trust in Jesus, help them to soften their hearts. Help them to investigate these glorious truths from your word. We pray that they will put their faith in Jesus and come into a relationship with you. Lord, help us to not make the same mistake as the Israelites in taking your gifts and grace for granted, but rather help us to worship and glorify you. And finally, Lord, help us to rest assured in your eternal covenant established through Jesus. We pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.